Everybody, welcome to episode 176 of the Man of Screen podcast. On this episode, I'm going to continue my run through season two of of the Saul Kine produced Superboy television series, which aired in syndication from 1988 until 1992. And I will be covering episodes 15 and 16 this week: Microboy and Run Dracula Run. Uh, the Microboy episode will be a very uh, comic book like. Story, one that you might have seen in an old Superman or Superboy comic of the time when somebody uh, gives themselves superpowers to win over the love of Lois or Lana Lang. I kind of commented on uh, on Facebook yesterday when I watched this episode that uh, I kind of wonder how many times Carrie Bates had written an episode like that. And uh friend of the show and uh, prolific letter writer Dave McElvenny commented that it did sound very... Uh, Carrie Bates like I was kind of waiting for my other uh Silver Age aficionado uh, Bob Fisher to chime in but he uh didn't say anything so we've got that uh the first episode we're covering uh tonight and the second episode is going to feature the return of Dr. Byron Shelley from uh the episode earlier in the season titled Young Dracula because I think that was the name off the top of my head but before I get to this week's episode I have feedback to address feedback is from you guessed it Dave McElvenny Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 165, and Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. The War of the Species was a bit different from the usual scientist creates an android that decides to eliminate humans plot, with the surprise that the inventor was actually an android himself, with a plan to build more androids so they can return to their home planet to kill his creators. I wasn't entirely clear, though, on whether he specifically chose Earth as his base for his plan, since the level of technology here would seem less advanced than what he might want. I mean... It's not like we were even close to building androids in the 1980s. I agree that the student journalism war subplot was pretty unnecessary, but maybe the writer was going for characterization or simply wanted to pad the episode out to fill time. Little Hercules was, in some way, of its time, with Billy's situation of being bullied for being different, and, given the likely audience for the show, specifically being bullied for being young and smart. Certainly, Clark could relate to this feeling of alienation. On the other hand, although of its time, the idea of a very young super genius easily hacking into military computer systems with nearly disastrous effects, much like Matthew Broderick in 1983's War Games, seems almost laughable nowadays. And certainly in the current hyperconscious of security threats, I expect Billy to be either disappeared into detention somewhere or recruited as a white hat hacker to help test and improve the military computer systems. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as always, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. Yeah, that was a nice twist in War of the Species where uh, the uh, scientist uh, creating the android was an android himself. That was a neat twist, uh, being that usually the creators of the androids are humans and the android deciding to eliminate humans' plot is as old as science fiction itself. Sometimes not even an android, it's just artificial intelligence uh, itself decides that we're destructive and going to destroy ourselves anyway. And honestly, you look at the world today and you can almost think... uh, is the artificial intelligence wrong? I mean, 
I, I'm guessing uh, as a bunch of science fiction writers are somewhat pessimistic. And every time they create an artificial intelligence in their story, it goes to uh, destroy mankind because it's either a threat to them or we're going to do it anyway. And as far as Dave's not being clear on whether he chose Earth as his base for the plan, I didn't go back and watch the entire episode because why would I? But uh, I did uh, go back over the scene where he reveals to Superboy that he's from a world where they were built as slaves. But it do- he doesn't say how he wound up on Earth, just that they uh, rose up against their masters. Uh, the rest of it is left uh, pretty mur- murky. So... And uh, yes, uh, as far as the Student Journalism Award subplot, the only thing I think that makes it necessary is because losing the award to Clark, which, again, I don't even know why they'd be in the same category with Clark as a writer and TJ as a photographer, but I'm not going to uh, litigate that again. But the only thing I remember that plot serving was that was the impetus for TJ to go back to the factory on his own. And that's what gets him caught and brings us to the climax of that episode. And as far as uh, Little Hercules goes, it is of its time, kind of, in a way. I mean, Billy's a situation of being bullied for being different and uh, is not necessarily of its time. That is still something that happens today. I mean, what do you really think about it? This is what, 31 years old, this episode? Sad to say that there has not been a lot of forward progress in that time we are still bullying people for being different there are some people in certain places that will ridicule you for being intelligent i remember i was at a wedding once and i had to make a speech because i was asked to i wouldn't have ordinarily but let's just say when i heard some of the other speeches i kind of became self-conscious about how intelligent i am and yes clark can definitely relate to his feeling of alienation although that doesn't really go anywhere be a Beyond one conversation. And yes, the idea of the young super genius hacking into the computer system is uh, laughable nowadays. Although I do think around this time, maybe a few years later, wasn't there like a 14 to 15 year old kid who hacked into the Pentagon computer or something like that? So you don't hear about that so much now. But yeah, that was definitely uh, something that you heard about once or twice back then in the dawn of the Internet age. And I was definitely not happy with the ending where there were no consequences uh, visited upon Billy. He pretty much got away with it, and he was neither disappeared nor recruited to be a white hat hacker. So I felt Billy should have faced some consequences for what he did. I mean, the whole situation was Billy's fault. The fact that he doesn't face any consequence because he helped fix the problem doesn't change the fact that he created the problem in the first place. Again, I went on about that in episode 165. No reason to go on about it here. And uh, Steve J. Rogers left a uh, comment on the episode in uh, the Man of Screen podcast Facebook group where Steve commented that, I know Joker is more an appropriate poll for this crowd, but poetry writing seems more in line with Johnny Cash. Though not the computer literate about lingo and skills, though. The story goes that the guy developing Johnny's online presence back in the early days of 1995-96 wanted an MP3 file to play as soon as you went to the website address of the iconic cash greeting hello i'm johnny cash and he added in welcome to johnnycash.com well due to not knowing his way around the site address the first take was johnny speaking the dot well due to not knowing his way around a site address the first take was johnny thinking the quote-unquote dot was an unspoken period so he said welcome to johnnycash.com and 
I definitely did not think of Johnny Cash when I took my notes on this episode. And the the Joker was a little uh, foremost on my mind uh, because it's recent. And it's also a DC Comics poll. But the other connection to Johnny Cash would be that Joaquin Phoenix did play Johnny Cash in Walk the Line back in uh, 2005. So, Thank you, Steve, for that uh, little tidbit. Now I'm going to take a podcast promo break. And when I come back, Microboy. Hang around, folks. Hey, everybody. I'm Paul Spataro. I don't know if you know me, but I'm a regular on Back to the Bins, along with my friends, Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. And Mr. Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? Andy's been asking us for a promo for the show for the longest time, and Bill has been writing it for the longest time. Bill, you got that promo written yet? Uh... Okay, so, anyway, what we do is we review three comic books. We try to do it every week. Usually it's a Marvel, a DC, and a Captain Canuck book for Scott. So... Tune in every week to Back to the Bins to listen to our show. You can find us at twotruefreaks.com. All right. Welcome back, folks. We're going to lead things off with Microbook. This is episode 15 of season two. Original broadcast date is January 27th, 1990. This episode was directed by Richard J. Lewis and written by Carrie Bates. Guest cast included Frank Military as Hector Hornsby and the Microboy. George Akiris as Professor Peterson in, sadly, what will be his last appearance on the show. Kay Stevens as Mrs. Hornsby. Tony Fabazzi as the Derelict. Larry Francer as Felix. Tim Powell as Orville Wright. Steve Kelly as Wilbur Wright. George Colangelo as the drama teacher. And Jimmy Starr as the student. And granted, she's not part of the guest cast, but I'm going to include her here anyway. Stacey Heideck as Julianne. You'll see if you haven't watched the episode already. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. A boy named Hector works in his lab in the garage of his home. He fiddles with a machine that draws microwaves from the city to his home into a chamber that he then enters. While doing so, his nagging mother comes in and begins to pull him to put him down. to show for it. Toys. A garage full of toys. They're not toys, Mother. And you didn't even finish your dinner. Why do I bother? Why do I bother doing anything for you? You're getting to be just like him. Remind me more of your father every day. He was a sorry excuse for a human being. And you're no better. Mother, I have to concentrate. Could you please go away? Don't you talk to me like that. Can't you see I'm in the middle of something? All I can see is this mess, your usual mess. This is not a good time for you to be in here. Once I begin to appear in public, people will forget all about Superboy. You can't read that. It's private. Microboy will be the one they talk about. Microboy will be the hero everyone looks up to. No one reads my journal, no one! Hector, what's all this rubbish about Microboy? Who's Microboy? No one reads my journal. No one. (laughs) 
at the Siegel Institute, Superboy watches as Professor Peterson tests the time machine uh, created by Professor Zugar. While assessing a time-traveling frog, Peterson's wave transmitter alerts him to a disturbance, microwaves being drained from their surroundings. Back at Hector's home lab, he's explaining to his mother about his powers and his love for Lana. I've turned my body into a kind of battery. I draw microwaves out of the air and convert them into energy that I now have at my fingertips. Heat generation is just one of the tricks that I can do. You almost burned me, Hector. You don't burn your mother. I didn't mean to. These powers, what are they? And since when do you think you have to be a hero like Superboy? Since I met her. She's the girl of my dreams, Mother. She's in my drama class at school. I want to marry her. Her name is Lana. Lana. So young. So pretty. You can't be serious, Hector. Oh, Mother, don't start up again with this, please. You're a tinkerer, Hector. You have an inventive mind, just like your father. And like him, you're jinxed. You're a loser. You'll never amount to much. You'll never know what it's like to be a success. And you'll never... And I'll never find real happiness. Isn't that right, Mother? Mm-hmm. And let's not forget about love. I'll never find true love either. It's for other people. That's why you've got to get rid of that tanning booth, and I want you to forget all about this microboy nonsense. Do you hear me, Hector? I hear you, Mother. In a wooded area, a criminal runs from police while a short distance away, Lana and Hector recite a scene from Romeo and Juliet in their drama class. The criminal then shows up and holds a gun to Andy's head. The distraction allows Hector to sneak away and change the microboy. He uses his microwave power to heat up the criminal's gun, burning his hand. When he makes a run for it, Microboy sets two picnic tables on fire to stop him. He introduces himself to Lana and then flies away. Clark arrives after it's over and is, and is astonished to find that Microboy can fly. Back in his garage, Hector was proud of his feet. You never suspected that of all the people, I would be Microboy. So you think you're a big shot now, huh, Hector? Caught one crook and you got your picture in the paper. So do you uh, think this Lana girl is going to think you're a big hero now? Hmm? You have an inventive mind, Hector. But that won't change things. You can't fight fate. You're always going to be a loser. Just like your father. A lifelong loser. Then he angrily gets into his chamber and amps up more microwaves full throttle. At the Siegel Institute, Superboy arrives at... Superboy, thank the stars you got to the airport in time. Three near collisions, I hear? Well, luckily I was able to keep the planes from colliding until the tower got their backup radar online. Well, the disruption this morning was the worst yet, but today I have a strong hunch as to what's causing these disturbances, or should I say, who? Microboy? 
Meanwhile, Microboy, determined to have Lana's love, goes on campus and takes her. At the Institute, Superboy and Peterson guess that Microboy will go to the city's solar plant next to feed. At the solar plant, Lana figures out who Microboy is. Lana, this is a solar power plant. The energy that I draw here will make me invincible. And you're going to be so proud of me. Why are you staring at me like that? What man art thou who stumblest on my counsel? By name, I know not how to tell thee who I am. It is you. Hector, I don't understand. Why have you done this? Because I love you. And I knew that you would never love me back. So I gave myself these powers and this costume so I could be like Superboy. Oh, Hector. What I feel for Superboy, it's got nothing to do with, with his powers or cape. Love. Real love. It doesn't work that way. He begins to feel pain from excessive absorption of power from the solar activators. Superboy arrives, and when Lana runs to his side, Hector truly feels like he is lost. He overwhelms Superboy with microwaves and binds him to a tree. Lana runs to his aid, and Hector, now dying, begs for Lana's sympathy. Superboy overcomes the microwave, then releases him from the tree. He delivers a blow to Hector that knocks him out. Back at the Institute, Hector is on bed rest, but it appears hopeless that he'll ever recover, since there are microwaves practically everywhere. Then, Superboy has the idea to use Zugar's time machine to take him to a time where there are no microwaves. Superboy and Hector appear on a farm in 1903. I can't deny that I seem to be cured, but why take me back this far? Why 1903? Think about it, Hector. In 1903, electricity was still in its infancy. Oh, I see. There were no microwaves in the air. That means I can never go back, can I? No. What about my mother? <laughs> I bet you'd be better off without me. Would you do me a favor? Could you say goodbye to Lana for me? Sure. Thank you. One more thing. Where are we? You'll figure it out. Talking about sustained flight. Twelve seconds is nothing. <laughs> one problem at a time, Orville. One problem at a time. Orville? Yeah? Wilbur? Uh-huh. Hi. 
I'm Hector. Hector Hornsby? So where were we? Uh, lateral control. Now, how do we achieve lateral control when we have a rigid... Excuse me. Have you ever thought of replacing these static wires with control wires for the wings? That way the cellulose can, can warp and twist in flight. What did you say your name was? Hector. Hector Hornsby. Orville, is this what you need? Yeah, hon. Oh, thank you. Do I know you? Oh, uh, Hector, this is our cousin, Julianne. W were you at the square dance last week? No, I wasn't. Uh, now, Hector, uh, let's talk about these control wires. Oh, okay. Now, if we attach them on the inside of the wing right here, and then we bring this one right on down here, and we put the control in the center. That'll be good. That way you can twist it and get the lift. All right, so this episode starts off with a bit of a science project. This, Like I said in the opening, this is a bit of a silver, maybe even Bronze Age type story that we've seen quite a bit. I have lost track of how many stories I've read in comics of that era where the villain of the episode has given himself superpowers to impress either Lana Lang or Lois, like I mentioned before. So we start off with this little science project, and we find that from a calendar that it's March 1st. I don't know why that's important, but apparently it is. And we've got this nerd. This is our, this is Hector. He's uh, working on something. And if his calculations are correct, uh, he's going to be a superhero as well. And he's doing it for quote unquote her. The episode is slow to uh, reveal to us who her actually is. But come on, who else could it possibly be? Even if you hadn't just listened to me read uh, the synopsis. So we, Hector's got a satellite dish. His uh, last name is Hornsby. There was a character named Hornsby in Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. He was the realtor that uh, was selling the Kent farm that Clark wound up not selling. Or at the very least, holding out for a real farmer. So I don't know if this is an odd to that or what. But either way, Hector is isn't a bit of a nerd, kind of like a Clark type person. He looks very much uh, like Clark with the horn rim glasses and the dark hair. A little shorter, though. And honestly, when I first saw the name of the episode titled Micro Boy, I kind of wondered if he'd have some kind of shrinking power. Because when I saw the prefix micro, I immediately thought small. But I didn't even think of microwave, so the show had one on me there. And uh, we talked about in the uh, feedback segment about being bullied for being different. Basically, Hector here is bullied by his mother for being kind of nerdy and a tinkerer. Apparently, his father was the same way, and uh, she basically yelled at him for wasting money going to college because apparently all of his brains, at least in her mind, are not going to uh, amount to anything. She calls it a garage full of toys, which and uh, goes after him for not finishing his dinner. So here is Hector, I don't know, I guess maybe 18 to 20, definitely college age. So that puts him 18 to 21-ish, still being screamed at by his mother for not eating dinner. Apparently, according to his mother, he's a sorry excuse for a human being, just like his father. So now she uh, goes through his stuff, starts reading his journal. She clearly has no respect for his privacy or him at all. And Victor completely overreacts, as I expected he would, to his mother reading his journal. I think just about everybody overreacts when somebody else kind of gets into their private thoughts. So he burns the book, freaks his mother the hell out, and we're on our way into this episode. 
cut over to uh, Professor Peterson, who is uh, working on uh, Professor Dugar's time machine in his absence. I don't know where Professor Dugar went, but I'm glad he's not here. Referring to Professor Dugar's time machine as a callback to the Hollywood episode at the end of season one. Like It was a pretty fun episode, but I am more than happy to not see Professor Dugar again. And uh, they're doing a test run, and at the very beginning, not having read the synopsis, I was kind of wondering how this was going to play into the episode, because you don't introduce a time machine into the first five minutes of an episode if it's not going to play a role in the resolution somehow. So Peterson uh, sends this frog to uh, 1961 and retrieved it five minutes later. So there's that. When are you going to send something through time? I guess you send the frog or your pet dog, you know. Only either way, the time machine works. But apparently Hector's work is interfering with uh, Professor Peterson's work on the time machine because uh, Hector is drawing kind of microwaves in from the city and it's uh, running interference, which is almost appropriate that something is screwing around with the time machine. For those of you who remember the Hollywood episode, it was Zugar's work on the time machine itself that was screwing around with the city's power grid. So Hector is trying to figure out what is going on, and his mother's pissed, and he's scared as hell. He he senses there's some kind of overload coming. So through the course of the next time we see Hector is, then we finally learn who her is. Of course, it's Lana. He uh, tells his mother about her, and she uh, she is as supportive as anybody would expect their mother to be by telling him that he's a loser and won't amount to anything. Good parenting there. Way to pile on the positive reinforcement. She's positive that he's a loser and won't amount to anything. And he's trying. Maybe he feels like he's got something to prove to his mother, but you know, apparently she's been beating him down. I'm not going to say physically, but definitely mentally all his life. That's why Hector is like this. He feels he has something to prove. He feels he's not good enough. He feels he's not good enough for Lana because she's in love with Superboy. And he doesn't know how to be good enough. He doesn't know how to go about getting things the right way. And so it leads to the screwball plan to give himself superpowers and basically become Superboy's competition. And his mother thinks she's helping him, but she's not. And in response to all this, Hector puts on this ugly-ass yellow helmet with some kind of yellow lightning bolt on it. So that's going to be part of the costume. So now there's a police chase through the woods, and I have a feeling this is going to interrupt uh, Lana and Hector's uh, drama class here. And it's not a police chase with cars. It's a foot chase. Just want to specify that. Lana and Hector are playing the roles of Romeo and Juliet underneath uh, this gazebo in a field, and they just happens to be wandering by as class end, ends, and uh, the teacher uh, praises Hector's focus. Maybe uh, being stuck under the microwave emitter has uh, renewed Hector's focus. I don't know. So now Andy ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he becomes a hostage to uh, this criminal that's kind of running through town. <laughs> Hector goes behind the woods and very slowly changes his clothes behind the shrubbery and comes out as Microboy in this loud costume. I mean, these colors are just garish, and I'm sure it's designed to be absolutely ugly, because it is. That yellow helmet that we mentioned in the garage, it looked like it had this kind of floppy lightning bolt on it, and... This bodysuit looks like some kind of pale orange, and he's got orange boots just ugh, hard on the eyes. So he's Microboy because he shoots microwaves, and he makes sure that he, the officers know that he's Microboy and who is responsible for catching this bad guy, and he tells Lana that he's Microboy and flies off. So after all the fun is over, Clark shows up and is bewildered, which I wonder for a brief moment here if they're going to think that Clark is Microboy because there is a comment about Clark showing up after all the action is over 
Usually it's after the Super Bowl action Clark shows up, but no, but it doesn't go anywhere beyond this. Of course, like I mentioned, uh, Microboy and Hector has all the trappings of Clark Kent with the glasses and uh, all that, and his mother is no help. She praises his inventive mind, almost as if she's trying to say that if he can harness that inventive mind, maybe he can do something with it, but, you know, she still calls him a loser. Obviously, we have no idea of the relationship between his mother and uh, Hector's dad, who apparently they share similar traits. Hector is as much a loser as his father was, so I don't know if Hector's dad is dead, they got divorced, if he ran off with a microwave oven, I don't know. But were they married? I'm assuming she married him. There's no evidence for or against. And if she did, why'd she do that? And, uh, well, I'm not really going to go into a fictional marriage. People get married and have kids, and it turns out to be a mistake later on. Maybe that's what happened here. So I guess uh, in response, Hector is going to... uh, soup himself up make himself more powerful so in the next scene the show shows how much of a budget it doesn't have as superboy shows up at the seagull institute and says that he rescued three planes in an incident that the show couldn't afford to show us and superboy mentions that something is interfering with radar and things like that and and then kind of as this exposition about hector's power about microboy's powers interfering with everything that's going on there's this cut to Microboy abducting Lana and pushing Andy out of the way, that just seems thrown in there. It's almost like somebody was in the editing process and said, oh, crap, we didn't put this in, and they just kind of shoved it in there. Like, come on, guys, we need this episode to get moving. I guess it's running out of time or something. But it's kind of clear when they land at the uh, solar field that Lana knows who Microboy is as she starts uh, doing Shakespeare, and Hector does it in response, and that kind of confirms his identity. Lana asks why he's done all this, and he says that he he did it all for love. Unlike Meatloaf, he did everything for love, and he did do that. Meatloaf didn't specify what what she wouldn't do was, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't souping himself up with microwaves and giving himself superpowers. But even though Meatloaf probably wouldn't do this, Hector did. I'm going to move on from this point because I really don't know, don't know where I'm going with that. Nowhere good, I don't think. Well, anyway, Lana is not impressed, nor should she be. I mean, this is obsession, and this could be dangerous. And she explains to him that her love for Superboy has nothing to do with his powers or his cape. I call bullshit. But she does say true love doesn't work that way. You can't just abduct somebody and make them fall in love with you. And uh, she's right. You're not going to find true love by abducting the object of your affection and bringing her to the solar power plant. And it looks like Hector is overloading from the solar power. And now he's realizing maybe that he should have listened to his mother. And he's referring to himself as a loser as Superboy shows up. I was expecting Superboy to give the no one's born a loser speech, but we don't get it. And since Hector has decided he's a loser and has nothing left to lose, he's going to attack Superboy because what else do you do in that situation? He can't have Lana, so of course he's going to kill Superboy. Makes perfect sense. And they're both awash in this animated yellow glow. And now Hector finally admits that the energy is killing him. He's an addict. The power is a drug to him, and he's overdosing, and I wonder what there's to be done for him. Enter the time machine. Superboy brings him to uh, Professor Peterson, and it's hopeless. At least, as of what Peterson thinks he has available to him. They can't be saved because there's no place in this quote-unquote day and age without microwaves. And I'm kind of wondering if there's no place in... 1990 with no microwave. I can only imagine what microwave 
Or like now. With all the technology we've got flying around. So the big clue is that phrase, day and age. So Superboy's idea is to send him into the past to save his life. To a time where there are no microwaves. So this is how Zugar's time machine is going to come into play. And Superboy is really earnest about this. He even tells Peterson, if he won't do it, he'll do it himself. So I'm not sure that convinces Peterson this is the right thing to do. But it gets to a point where Superboy will hear no argument. And Peterson knows that we've reached that point. So off they go into the past. At first, it's unclear how far in the past they are. But Hector eventually realizes that they are in 1903 where there are now microwaves, and then suddenly he realizes he can't go home. And even though she spent pretty much his whole life berating him, Hector is still concerned for his mother. Maybe Superboy will pass along a goodbye message to him. I don't know. I'm sure she'll snarl at him, too. And Hector is going to get a chance to put his inventive mind to good use. So even though he stalked Lana and abducted her, Superboy's doing the right thing by giving Hector a chance to live in 1903 and beyond, depending on how long he lives, and he he can do some good here. He is in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, where the, the Wright brothers are working on their uh, sustained uh, flight vehicle. So he's going to help them with their airplane, and suddenly they have a cousin, Julianne, which is played by Stacy Heideck. This gets Hector's attention, and they're both a little smitten, and uh, it seems like they... Uh, like Hector is going to get a version of Lana after all, which I'm not sure what exactly that says. Like, is he in love with Lana because of she's Lana or is he obsessed with Lana because of the way she looks? I mean, if Julianne is the exact replica of Lana, well, what does that tell you about Hector's emotional depth? It doesn't, it doesn't tell you that you, he has much. So, like I said, this storyline is as old as comics itself. I wonder how many stories like this Carrie Bates has written during his time as a Superman and Superboy writer. This is not an episode that I really loved. The whole motivation is ridiculous. It kind of makes his mother not wrong, although her parental tactics were very lacking. And that suit was ugly. I mean, his, I'm not defending his mother by any stretch of the imagination, but he was probably ends up a quote unquote loser in the present because of the way she treated him. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's her own fault the way he turns out just as much as it is Hector's. But at least Hector He's going to do some good with his life in the past. But boy, was that suit ugly. So this wasn't the worst episode of the series, but that doesn't make it good. Just a big pile of meh. So that being said, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo. When I come back, run Dracula run. Hang around, folks. Love him or hate him. Everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Men when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne? Oh, he he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Burn, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com 
and on iTunes. I got a question though. I just am curious. Why doesn't Green Lantern have any junk? Welcome back, folks. We're going to finish this episode off with Run, Dracula, Run. This is episode 16 of season 2. Original broadcast date was February 3rd, 1990. Directed by Richard J. Lewis and written by Carrie Bates and Ilya Salkind. Guest cast included Kevin Bernhard as Dr. Byron Shelley, Louis Seeger Kroom as the sheriff, Ivan Green as the old man, Leslie Lacey as Lorraine, and Ed Amatrudo as Moe. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. Byron Shelley is walking through a small town. When he stops to take a dose of his serum, he is mugged by a couple. The woman is accidentally shot by her partner in the process. Byron tries to use his mind control to stop the man from taking his serum. But because of Byron's weakened state, the man is able to fight it and gets away. Byron breaks into a funeral home and calls Lana at the dorm. Hello? Byron? You sound terrible. Are you all right? I've lost my serum, Lana. All of it. And I'm slipping back. I can already feel it. The craving. You've got to resist it. Is there anything I can do to help? Tell us, little boy. He has to stop me before it's too late. I'm losing control, Lana. Tell him that I'm losing control. At the dorm, Lana is writing a note to Clark to pass along a message to Superboy and is preparing to go see and help Byron. You know, Lana, if I were you, I'd wait till Clark got home so he could tell Superboy. This town that Byron called from, that's a long way away. It's a long drive when you're sticking your neck out. I owe him. If it wasn't for Byron, yeah, I would... Yeah, yeah, I know. You would have gotten bit by a vampire, but without his medicine, there's nothing stopping him from turning into one, too. Lana, for all you know, he could be driving around this town in his very own bloodmobile. He knows I'm a friend. He's not going to hurt me. Well, I'm off. Wish me luck. Lana. Um... If if you wanted, I, I could come, you know. Great. Great. All right, listen, but I'm not going vampire hunting empty-handed. I'll tell you what, I'll meet you downstairs in an hour. Hey, thanks. You're real sweetie. For <sighs> that, big guy? I'm a sweetie. <laughs> now who's the hero? Just don't take too long, huh? They arrive at the town with Andy donning vampire hunting gear and look for him in the funeral home. Back at the dorms, Clark is talking to his mother on the phone while Andy goes into the basement of the funeral home and leaves Lana alone, and Byron finds her. Hello, Lana. 
I hate funeral homes. Part of me wanted you when we first met. Then, Superboy stood between us. Now it's different. Now I can offer you something he can't. Eternal youth, Lana. And love. A love no mortal woman can ever imagine. Ma, I do go out on dates with Lana. Study dates. But how many times have I told you? She thinks she's in love with Superboy. I know that you want to be with me forever, Lana. And all that you must say is yes. Yes. In the basement, Andy is snooping around until Byron confronts him. Andy foolishly thinks that Garlic will stop him, but it does no good. Neither does the cross he bears, since his will isn't strong enough to back it up. Byron tosses Andy, knocking over a lamp and setting the basement on fire. At the dorm, Clark sees the note Lana left as he hangs up with his parents. He changes to Superboy and flies out to the funeral home. He puts out the fire and inhales the smoke with his super breath. He takes Andy outside and then goes back in for Lana, who's waiting for him in the corner of the basement. With Superboy vulnerable and not expecting it, he's bitten by Lana. Byron seals Superboy in a coffin, then drives him away in a hearse as Andy watches. As they walk, Byron tells Lana about the life of the undead. The sun never used to hurt like this before. Soon it will be fatal. As the curse progresses, we will only be able to go into the darkness. What's it like to be undead? First, you must die with a second bite. That is the final baptism that makes a vampire whole, and it is only with that you can rise again. You'll crave the darkness, shun the daylight. You'll stalk humans and drink their blood. You'll be forever young, forever beautiful, forever mine. Meanwhile, Andy is trying to explain to the uh, police about Byron. Do you really think I'm going to believe that cockamamie story about a doctor who's a vampire? You can sell that one for the movies. <sighs> okay. All right. Uh, look at it this way. Byron Shelley is just a guy with a medical condition. Like, like a diabetic without his insulin. If he doesn't have his serum, he goes crazy. <sighs> this never would have happened if he didn't have his bag stolen. Byron tells Lana of arrangements to be picked up by his father. My father is sending for us tonight. It's all arranged. He answered your message? Oh, I knew that he would. Ever since the day that my mother took me away from him, he's never stopped looking for me. I told him about you, Lana, and he seemed pleased. I also told him that I was bringing a peace offering that he would not be able to refuse. Superboy. At the jail, the thug that stole Byron's serum sits in a cell losing his mind due to Byron's mind control. Andy takes possession of Byron's bag. At an aircraft hangar, Byron has Superboy trussed up in chains. Then a black Learjet pulls in, piloted by Byron's father. Superboy begins to resist, then breaks the chains. He and Byron begin to fight. Byron swings the Superboy with a metal post. Superboy takes the post, breaks it in half, and melts it into, and melts it into a cross with his heat vision. Superboy's strong will gives the cross great power, 
weakening Byron and forcing his father's plane to leave. Superboy binds Byron in the chains. Andy enters the hangar with the serum and sees Lana. She tries to bite him, but Superboy stops her. They give Lana the serum, and then Superboy wants revenge on Byron for hurting Lana. Lana stops him, and then Superboy gives Byron the serum and takes him himself. You fall back. Even though you went into the spell. You, my friend, are a force for good not even the power of my father could overcome. Don't lose this. No, I won't. Thank you, Andrew. No problem. My serum will cure both of you completely. Well, what about you? I was born with the blood of my father in my veins. My cure is a different matter. Goodbye, Lana. Where will you go? I have to keep running. Now he'll never stop searching for me. Byron, who's your father? My father is the Prince of Darkness. He is Count Dracula. So this episode is going to feature the return of Dr. Byron Shelley, like I mentioned in the opener, our young vampire from the young Dracula episode. You know, now that I think back on the young Dracula episode, being that since vampires age a lot slower than humans do, I kind of wonder how young, young Dracula actually is. And young Dracula was not really an episode that I expected a sequel to. So uh, the sun rises as Dr. Shelley walks into this uh, small town here. And for those of you who remember... uh, Byron's serum allows him to walk around during the daytime, so that's why he's able to walk around on a bright, sunny day. But he feels that the uh, thirst is starting to uh, overcome him, but he's jumped as he's about to take his serum by these two uh, drugged-out people, this man and a woman here. So we get a, a reference to the old Incredible Hulk television show, or a Hulk reference in general when he says, you wouldn't like me without my medicine, kind of a take on uh, the Hulks, don't make me angry, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And it's kind of funny because... I made a reference to David Banner when Shelley walked off at the end of his previous episode, kind of walked off into the sunset the way Bruce Bixby's David Banner did in the end of every episode of The Incredible Hulk. It's nice to see that it wasn't lost on the writers of the show. That might have even been something they were going for. So like I said, he was jumped by these two people, his man and his girlfriend. And in the scuffle, the girlfriend gets shot. And both uh, Byron and the male mugger are feeling guilty about it. But the male mugger gets away with Byron's bag and... Byron cannot take his serum, and what he calls his sickness, his curse, his uh, vampirism, is going to overcome him, and he knows this, so having lost his serum, Byron calls Lana to get Superboy to stop him. He knows he's losing control, and he knows that when that happens, only Superboy can stop him. However, it was never Byron's intention for Lana to come herself. He doesn't say that straight out during the phone call, but... I can only assume that 
because he's asking for Superboy, he doesn't want her to come and put herself in danger, which is, of course, exactly what Lana's going to do. She goes to Clark because she needs him to get a hold of Superboy. Andy is pleading with her uh, not to go where Byron is, but she says that she owes him from what happened during the their last encounter and says he won't hurt her. You know, anytime someone says in a work of fiction that he won't hurt me or something of that nature or nothing bad will happen, well, it means just the opposite. So, yeah, he is going to hurt her. I can only imagine. I don't exactly know how Lana knows where Byron was, but she does. He doesn't actually tell her that he's in a funeral home, maybe. She had to call Traced or uh, something. I don't know. But Byron doesn't tell Lana where he is in, in the portion of the phone call that we saw. So Andy, in his ever-constant quest to uh, get with Lana, offers to go with her. But but he says he needs some vampire hunting gear. And when they get to the funeral home, he looks absolutely ridiculous in the, his uh, long black robe uh, and his garlic slung over his shoulder. I'm not sure he really wanted to go. But she takes him up on it and calls him a sweetie. That's enough to uh, give Andy a sense of euphoria. So while Lana and Andy are in this dark funeral home, Clark is delayed by a phone call from his mother. You know, that's the kind of thing that happens when you're a young superhero. You know, you're, you just come home. You're looking to go out and save the day. Well, you, at least you don't know that you want to go out and save the day yet. But, uh, you know, next thing you know, there's a call from mom that's going to hold you up. So while Andy goes into a room, Byron shows up. And I believe he's using uh, mind control on Lana to wear down his resistance and uh despite her assurances that to andy that byron will not hurt her he does and she's uh because of his vamp vampiric mind control powers she's uh burying her neck for him and all this is going on while clark and his mother are discussing why clark and lana don't have a more intimate relationship just the juxtaposition of those of that phone call and what's happening to lana are just so night and day hell of a time for that which is obviously the episode's way of uh keeping Clark from finding the note in time. So Lana gets bitten, and now Byron is after Andy, who is uh, checking off the vampire tropes in an effort to hold off Byron. Garlic doesn't work because Byron is too strong for that, and Andy uh, flashed a cross at him, but Andy's will is not strong enough to wield the power of the cross. So he knocks out Andy and sets the room on fire. I guess uh, three's a crowd, so Byron didn't uh, put a bite on Andy to turn him. So... This would be a good time for a Clark to uh, get off the phone, but, and Clark finally does. He's talking to Ma. He doesn't, it's unclear to me when he sees the note. It seems like he uses his telescopic vision to see the note before he hangs up the phone, but he kind of just said bye. So I'm guessing he quickly ended the call without, uh, without making his mother worried. I guess if he, uh, saw the note, read it and said, Oh, Lana's in trouble. She needs me to help with a vampire. That would make Ma worry. So he just said he had to go. So he ended the conversation quickly and off he goes. So Superboy arrives at the funeral home, blows out the fire, and inhales the smoke. Not a bad animation of the smoke being inhaled, but I'm not necessarily sure Superboy needed to uh, pose with his hands on his hips while doing that, but he does because it makes a good image. So Andy is now outside, safer than he was before, up against the tree, and uh, at least the smoke wasn't forgotten about it as Superboy blows that into the air. I always wondered in the George Reeves show what happened to the gas some of the time, because some, once in a while he would exhale it, other times he wouldn't, so... This time, he definitely exhales the smoke. So now Superboy is coming after Lana, and she's acting strangely. And then, you know, she's kind of far away, almost as if she's in a trance of some kind. And uh, now she bit him in the neck, and we all know he's vulnerable to magic, so a vampire bite can affect him. So the bite from Lana knocks him out, and Byron puts Superboy in a coffin so he can turn, and he will be part of the fold. Apparently, uh, Superboy makes uh, a pretty good gift uh, for his father. 
And apparently uh, Byron at this point wants, being that he's uh, going full vampire again, he wants to kind of make peace with his father. When he's the human Byron, he doesn't really want to do that. So apparently both Lana and Byron can exist in the daylight as they walk into the hearse in the broad daylight. I'm not sure why Byron can. Maybe there's still enough of the serum left in him that he can exist in the daylight. He mentioned that Lana can walk around in, during the daylight because the curse uh, has not been completed. She needs a second bite to uh, become a full vampire. So Lana hears about all the advantages of being a vampire, being uh, able to, uh, being forever beautiful and all that jazz. She'll live a long time. So I, it's unclear if Byron has to bite her a second time or if another vampire has to bite her. The uh, That part is not clear, but... And I am uh, not up on vampire lore, so if any of you out there are, you know, let me know. So while they're talking, uh, Superboy is kind of wigging out in the car, destroying the coffin because he's uh, you know, just screaming and uh, kicking his feet. He's in a lot of pain. So Andy goes to the sheriff. At least I think this guy's the sheriff. He's got a sheriff badge on. And he is not buying Andy's story about a vampire, but uh, Andy reframes the story as Byron having a condition and can't go without his medicine. That's a little bit easier for the sheriff to swallow. And I get it, you know, if uh, somebody came into town uh, saying uh, that I didn't know, saying that there's this vampire doctor in town, I don't know if I'd believe it either. So so even though Andy is working the vampire bit, there is this some guy sitting in the back that all of a sudden said the telegram came in and uh, basically Andy wouldn't believe where the telegram came from. And we don't hear where it came from at first. That surprise is being uh, held back for a few minutes. Superboy, meanwhile, has been weakened and is chained up and... Uh, the thirst that she's feeling for Superboy's blood at this point is almost uh, orgasmic for Lana, and uh, Stacey Heideck is really playing it up. So now it's nighttime, we're in an airplane hangar, and here comes this uh, Black Learjet, and it looks like Superboy hasn't fully uh, succumbed to the curse yet. He's still sweating profusely, and as we're continuing to uh, get a very slow entrance of Byron's father, who, by the way, we never see, the, the door to the jet opens and kind of this mist comes out, I'm kind of wondering if Byron's quote unquote fa- if Byron's father can travel by mist. Why does he need a Lear jet? But that's uh, neither here nor there. So as Superboy struggles, you can see he's got the vampire fang, so he is turning, but he is gaining some strength, and he breaks out of the chains. And I believe the shot where he breaks out of the chains will be part of the season three and four opening sequence. You know, as those pictures uh, kind of those brief shots fly over the screen as uh, the narration is speaking. When the narrator says they have the strength of steel. The shot they use during that moment is the shot here of Superboy breaking out of the chains. So we're led to believe that Lana is okay and uh, now is fighting Byron. And they're fighting over Lana. And Superboy does have his powers, even though he's kind of mid-transformation. So Superboy makes a cross with this pike. And he has a strong enough will to wield it. And he also had a strong enough will to kind of beat the curse on his own. Byron's father leaves as he no longer wants any part of Superboy. The power of the cross being wielded by Superboy is enough to send Byron's dad packing. And uh, now Andy shows up, and here comes uh, Vampire Lana, who comes to bite him. Andy is sporting a telegraph from Transylvania as Lana tries to bite him. But Superboy just kind of grabs her, and Andy gives her the serum. And we're going to eventually find out that the serum will cure both her and Superboy because they do not have any vampire blood in them. We're going to learn eventually that Byron is uh, has his father's blood, and therefore the serum just keeps him under control. It doesn't cure him. So anyway, Superboy is trying to kill Byron until Lana talks him down, reminds Superboy of who he is and what he believes in, and then the serum is fed to Byron, and then he takes some himself. So 
he was still under the influence of the curse when he fought Byron and Lana. Again, Superboy, Super Will. And Byron will eventually explain that Superboy is uh, such a force for good that his father's power couldn't overcome it. Okay, that's part of it, and I'm sure Superboy uh, was showing some serious willpower when he uh, flashed that cross. Remember, Byron said the cross didn't work for Andy because he was weak of will. Superboy is not. And it's his love for Lana and Lana's love for him that allows Superboy to, allows her to get close enough to Superboy to get into his head and not to kill Byron, even though the bloodlust is making him want to kill Byron. So, (laughs) as they say their goodbyes, Superboy reminds uh, Byron not to lose his serum. So maybe he should make some more. We I remember the setup in his apartment from the first time we saw Byron that uh, he produced some serum. So maybe he should uh, do some of that so he doesn't lose it. So he has enough to uh, go wherever he's going. And uh, this is uh, where we learn at the end that Byron's father is the Prince of Darkness himself. Nope, not Ozzy Osbourne, but Count Dracula himself. And the incredible Byron goes back on the road again onto his walkabout. This was a good follow-up to the previous story, although it is a rather bloodless vampire story for creatures that drink blood. You don't see any blood at all in this episode, and that's to be expected from a show of this type. But you don't even see a bite mark in this episode. I mean, I'm not saying there should have been blood spewing all over, but you know, maybe at least show a mark. And honestly, now that I think back to young Dracula, I don't even recall if anyone was bitten in that first episode. I'd have to go back and watch and check. So this episode was entertaining, better than Microboy, and a welcome addition to the show. We're never going to get it, I don't think, but I wouldn't mind seeing Superboy face off with uh, Crown Dracula, but we're not going to see Dr. Shelley again. So next time, we're going to uh, continue our run through Season 2 as we kind of get into the back third of the season here with uh, Brimstone and Abandoned Earth. I do believe Abandoned Earth is the first part of a two-episode story, which kind of sucks, but kind of is what it is. It's going to be broken up over two episodes. So until then, if you want to leave a feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. And if you don't mind, why don't you leave an episode of uh, for me on, over on Apple Podcasts. That'll help others find the show, and I will read your review in a future episode. Until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.